0: I wanted to, you know, ask this question because I was thinking about it this week. Uh, that's why I've called it the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about the word apocalypse and, and what comes to your mind when someone says apocalypse. And my opinion is what comes to our mind is a catastrophic event of some kind, something, something kind of like something kind of like this. You say apocalypse, and people are thinking about the end of the world, and catastrophic events, and chaos, destruction. That's devastation. This is what comes to our mind. But here's one of the dictionary definitions of apocalypse. It's a prophetic revelation concerning a cataclysm in which the forces of good permanently triumph over the forces of evil. And I was thinking it was kind of like this. This is what the dictionary would uh, give us, right? So this is sort of, for those of us that watch a lot of movies, uh, that guy's name actually is Apocalypse. I thought that was kind of interesting. So the idea in these movies is that there are these bad guys, they want to destroy the world, and then the good guys, whoever they might be, are going to overcome them, you know? And so, uh, and that might be a, a good definition. But you may not know this, the word Apocalypse Uh, in the Bible comes from a Greek word that is also translated as revelation. Uh, We're familiar with that from the book of Revelation right there in chapter one and verse one where John writes the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must, must soon take place. So the biblical word doesn't necessarily mean the English word all the time and it doesn't certainly mean the things that we think about in culture like death and destruction Um, It doesn't mean that some of what we understand biblically might not touch on those things, but that's not the definition. The biblical word for apocalypse means to remove a veil. It means to remove a curtain in order to have an unobstructed view. It means that we have a view. Something that was hidden has now been made known to us. So the question is, what is the apocalypse? What is the revelation? It's the revelation. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is very important. I think that whenever we talk about end times theology or the church at the end or what happens at the end of all things, I think the perspective of what matters the most has been hijacked. When you talk to people about the end times, they tend to think about destruction and chaos and the bowls and the trumpets and the play, all this stuff. Think about all this stuff, but we do not think about the coming of Jesus, which is what it's about. As far as I can tell, guys, the end of the world, as far as we know from Jesus, is all about his coming, And it's amazing to me that even Christians with with our theology, we focus on the wrong things and then we have to develop a theology to escape those things, which we're utterly focused on rather than him who is coming and we're looking forward to. And it robs our joy to hasten the day of the Lord, to see the one in whom we have believed, the one that we have loved. We shouldn't shrink back in fear. We should be excited and full of joy. Jesus is coming back. And I think we've been robbed and I, I hope that as we look at the Olivet Discourse with a little bit of detail that, I'm, that I'm, we're able to recapture this joy and this desire to see our King because He certainly is returning. Now, here's what I, I have to do. I must admit Uh, This is a difficult passage. It's going to take us some time. So I want to, instead of reading the whole passage all the way through, I want to read portions of the passage that we're studying today, and then I'm just going to make comments. So we'll start by looking at a review of chapter 13, verse 1 through 13, which I went over last week. Jesus and his disciples are engaged in a conversation about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. We talked about that. Jesus tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed. They can't even fathom why he would say that. So then they're sitting down on the Mount of Olives. They're looking at the temple and they ask Jesus this question, when will these things happen, the destruction of the temple and what will be the sign of your coming or when all these things will be fulfilled? Now I told you that it looks like one question, and it is to them, but it's really two questions. When's the temple going to be destroyed, and when's the end of all things going to happen? The Jews believed that it was one and the same. They did not understand Jesus coming, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then he was going to go away, be seated at the right hand of the Father, and then return. They didn't understand that. We now understand that. And so they're asking one question, thinking it's all going to happen at the same time. But the reality is Jesus answers them in two different ways. So we focused on a couple things last week. Number one, Jesus told the disciples that the temple in Jerusalem certainly would be destroyed. He affirmed that. Number two, the disciples wanted to know when the temple would be destroyed. He didn't tell them when. They also wanted to know when his kingdom would manifest. He did not tell them when. He only told them what and how to prepare themselves. And number three, Jesus answered the disciples by telling them there would be this long delay between two very different events. And so with that context, it's very important that we jump into verse 14. I'm going to talk a little bit about the temple destroyed and the great tribulation. Just some light reading today. You lost an hour of sleep, so I hope you're ready. Here we go. Jesus said, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Now, just hold on right there. When it says, let the reader understand, that means two things. Number one, that's an insertion by Mark. Okay. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say that's an insertion by Mark. And it means that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. So it's important that you, you get why that's, that's there. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down, Or go in to get anything out of the house, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it might not happen in winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of a creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now, there's a lot here. I'm only going to point out two things but there is something that we need to know when we're studying biblical language. And this is actually a really helpful point that I want you to capture. If you have something to take notes with, you probably want to take notes, but I want to provide a visual. When Jesus is talking, it seems like he goes back and forth between two different things. And so if you've ever felt confused when you're reading Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, or Luke 21, or even the book of Revelation, if you've ever felt confused, you should be. <laughs> it seems like there are multiple things at play. Multiple things are being talked about because it's true. In fact, the way that we know this is if you ever study the Old Testament. When the prophets prophesied about the coming of Jesus, they did not even know that there was going to be two comings. That Jesus would come, the Messiah would come as the suffering servant on one hand, and then he would come back as the conquering king. When the prophets prophesied, they didn't even really know that. That's why the Jews had a theology that he would come and that's what it would be. Now, when we look back on the Old Testament, we realize that their theology got a lot of things wrong. And sometimes we do as well. And this is why, because when they're saying things, they can, from their trajectory, it looks like one thing. But see, we can see that there's a mountaintop here and there also is there. But in one look, it almost looks like one thing to them. Do you see what I'm saying here? And so this is what you might call prophetic telescopic language. It's all over the Bible. In Revelation, it's, it's all there because Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is actually about the church in that day, and John is meant to deliver a message to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. It was actually meant for them. Some people believe that those three chapters unfold to the church age. I'm not a dispensationalist, so I don't think that. I think it was actually just for those churches in that day. Revelation 4, John hears a voice saying, come up here, and he goes through a door When he goes through the door, the rest of the book of Revelation is all about the last generation. It's really that simple. Jesus fills in a little bit for us here in the Olivet Discourse where he talks about there will be a long delay. A lot of things will happen until the return of the Lord. So there's a little bit of fill in. Now I'm sharing all this to say, often when someone is talking in the Bible and it feels like they're talking about two events, it's because they are. And... This is why people have varied interpretations on it. So the Olivet Discourse, Matthew or Mark 13, is the most difficult chapter outside of Revelation to interpret in the entire New Testament. And this verse, the Abomination of Desolation verse, is the most difficult verse of the most difficult chapter. And so you know that I came prepared with the exact right interpretation today. And so you are at the right place at the right time. I just feel so good for you, and I'm glad I met you today. Amen. It's a joke for those of you that are guests. Um, But I want to tell you what I think. That's what I'm up here to do. I'm here to tell you what I think. And after immersing myself in another 50 hours of eschatology um, or study of the end times, I've affirmed some of the things that I thought. I haven't really changed any of my positions. But let's look at two things through this passage. Number one. The the abomination of desolation has multiple meanings. This exact phrase is a reference to the book of Daniel where it is mentioned four times. Okay, In those four times, those are not the same events that Daniel is talking about. He's prophesying about different things, Daniel 8, 9, 11, and 12. Because of this, it's very hard to interpret, so stay with me. The word abomination usually refers to an idol in the Old Testament. And that idol is often worshiped, right? It's an abomination. The word desolation could be spiritually or it could be physically. Now, when the Jews heard Jesus say this, the Jewish mindset, when they heard Jesus say the abomination of desolation, they would have thought something very specific. And that's a historical fact. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek leader who hated the Jews, surrounded Jerusalem with armies to overthrow it. He did overthrow it. He desecrated the temple through offering a pig on the altar. Uh, they looked at that as an utter desecration. They also erected uh, a shrine to Zeus in the temple and many shrines to Zeus all around the city of Jerusalem. Um, in fact, this is what kind of launched the Maccabean Revolt, if you've ever heard about, heard about that. This is a historical fact. That's a reality. It happened. The Jews believed that Daniel 1131 happened in 167 BC. But the other references in Daniel are not referencing the same thing. Jesus is telling them in 70, well, he doesn't say when, but in 40 years from the time of when he's saying it, that there's going to be another desecration. So we know that in 70 AD, here's what happened. The Roman general Titus stormed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, left it in ruins. And this is an established fact in history The um, Jewish historian Josephus has a lot of detail about this. I I mentioned it last week. So when Jesus is prophesying, he definitely means the destruction of the temple, but he means more than that. And I think there's there's a reason that he's using the language that he is. He wants them and or us, the reader, he wants us to understand that this isn't just one thing that's gonna happen. It's actually kind of like a cycle. And I don't know if you see that, but 167 BC, 70 AD, and there's an allowance for a future perspective as well. So here's what Daniel 9.26 says. And this is fascinating. If you guys don't care about Bible prophecy, you should. Here we go. In Daniel 9.26 When you read it, you can't really come to another conclusion other than it talks about the Messiah that comes is going to be killed. I mean, this is astounding. And then it says the temple is going to be destroyed. So it tells us two things are going to happen. But then in verse 27, it talks about a world leader that's going to rise up in power and make a covenant with Israel. I'm going to read it to you. This is verse 27. That leader will confirm a covenant with many for seven years. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and the temple, at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. There's that same reference. Until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So this is why people have a futurist view of the words of Jesus. This is why. Because Daniel 12 and Daniel 9 seem to talk about something that hasn't happened yet and didn't happen in 70 AD. So here's the perspective of the futurist. This would be my perspective, I think. Jesus is also meaning this in co- uh, company with Daniel in Revelation. There's a world leader. We know him as the Antichrist. Uh, it is just a person, and uh, the spirit of Antichrist will overtake this person at a certain point in history. This person will make a covenant of peace with Israel. The temple will be rebuilt Now, if you think that's a stretch, I want to remind you, the temple's been built three times, okay? So it's not like that'll never happen. They said that in history and it happened and it was remodeled more than three times. So when you think about the temple, it's destroyed, it's rebuilt. It's destroyed, it's rebuilt. I don't know if you're seeing this, but when I study Bible prophecy, I see the same thing happening again. And it seems like before that comes devastation, destruction, but the, the, end, the end is uh, still not yet. So this world leader will reinstitute sacrifices. He will break his covenant with Israel and then set himself up in the temple to, to declare himself as God, according to 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. This is the abomination of desolation. This person, according to Paul, will declare himself as God and he will do it right in the temple, the temple that's rebuilt. All of this is going to happen during a seven-year period, which we call the Great Tribulation and is established three times. So this is not just my words. In the Bible, three times, it tells us that there's a seven-year period of time that will be called the Great We call the Great Tribulation, where there will be incredible human suffering like never before, and there will also be great persecution of the church and of Israel, and there will be a pouring out of God's wrath and judgment upon those who have not come to know Christ. So the prophetic language will often signify more than one thing. Now, since you all are convinced of that, let's move on to point two. This tribulation will be worse than any kind the world has ever known. To me, when I think about this, I, I just want to read the passage, okay? Because he says, flee to the mountains. Flee, those that are in Judea, those that are in Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. So that's important, right? So Those that are in Jerusalem, it's specific, this prophecy is specific for those that are actually in that land. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have any application for people that aren't in that land, but it tells me that the end is not going to be Eurocentric, it's going to be Israel-centric. This is a a very important point, especially if you've been a Bible prophecy student and you've watched, you know, Left Behind series, okay, you just gotta (laughs) follow with me because I haven't yet offended you enough yet, but... Here's what Jesus said, for the days will be, uh, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation. Stop right there. We've already seen Noah in the flood and we've already seen Sodom and Gomorrah. So whatever Jesus is talking about is worse than that. And then he says this, and it will be greater than anything that will ever happen. And unless he had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, he chose to shorten those days. What is Jesus talking about? To me, I do not believe he's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I just think this, this is something that is so, it's greater than anything that has ever happened before and anything that will ever happen again. If it says anything that will ever happen again, then to me, when I read Revelation 6-16, through 16, which is the great tribulation, that sounds like the greatest outpouring of difficulty, pain, chaos, and judgment that the Bible refers to. So this is why I think that Jesus is referring to the great tribulation. And for more on that, please do study Revelation 6 through 16. You might wanna do that as a family devotion tonight. I would encourage that. Okay, especially if you're having a little difficulty with your teenager. (laughs) Now we gotta move on here rather quickly. That's funny to me, I don't know Why, but uh, Mark 13, verse 24 through 32. I want to talk to you a little bit about the return of Christ and the rapture of the church. Here's what Jesus says. But in those days, look at this, after that tribulation, okay, after that specific tribulation, here's what's going to happen the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. "'Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds "'with great power and glory.'" So great tribulation, Jesus Jesus comes. "'And then he will send forth the angels, "'and they will gather together his elect "'from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth "'to the farthest end of heaven. "'Now learn the parable from the fig tree. "'When its branches has already become tender "'and puts forth its leaves, "'you know that the summer is near. "'Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, "'recognize that he is near right at the door.'" Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So this is definitely the last generation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. couple quick things. Number one, the sign of the return of Christ is the great tribulation and all that is associated with it. Jesus was clear that we should not be deceived by anybody telling us about signs or anybody telling us that Jesus is here or there. He wants it to be very clear. Do not listen to these voices. They don't know what they're talking about. When Jesus comes, you will know when the sign of his time is there. It's the great tribulation. That is the sign of his coming, all right? So, And this is a tribulation like we have never seen before. We are told of this throughout the Bible in, in at least four different places. All right, number two. We will not know the actual time frame of his return until the great tribulation begins. Everybody smile, all right? There's no language in the Bible given for us to understand when these things will happen specifically. Now that's important because it seems like every so often another book gets written and people flock to hear what somebody knows that seemingly no one else knows. Don't you love that God gave us a book? Everybody reads the same book, and for some reason we let let some foolish person write a book and go, oh, what is the secret? Here's the secret. We don't know. (laughs) And when somebody says they know, they're false. Jesus told us. It's amazing. And yet we still lose our biblical God-given minds. All right. Tim Keller said something that I think helps, and I agree with him on this. He said, there are two things that we can be sure about regarding the second coming of Jesus. First, it's definitely going to happen. That's a modern scholarship at its finest right there. Second, there's no way to predict when. I just agree with that, all right? But you have questions about the rapture, so here's where it gets a little controversial from my perspective. And the rapture is the church gathering to the king as he returns, Now, here's the great tribulation. There's seven years of great tribulation. Some people believe that the church is going to be taken before the seven years. That's called pre-trib rapture. Some people believe that. Some of you believe that. Some people believe that the church is going to be taken three and a half years in. And the reason they think that is because at this three and a half year point, this is basically where the bowls of wrath are poured out and the judgment on the earth intensifies is what the Bible reveals. So some people are like, there's no way the church is going to be here when that happens. So Jesus takes us out. We sort of suspend in the air. I don't know what they believe. Anyways, the other perspective is that We believe it's going to, whoever the church is of the last days, they're just going to be here until the end, whatever that looks like. The question, though, is if you believe that, you're post-trib, then what about the wrath of God? We're we're not going to be judged by God, right? And the answer is, yeah, we're not going to be judged by God. So if post-tribulation is true, then somehow we'll be spared. And we have precedent for that. I mean, the children of Israel were in Egypt and they didn't experience the same plagues as the Egyptians did. I mean, we have, there's biblical precedent for this. So my perspective, personally, um, I've always had this position. I've always been uh, post-tribulation. So some of you, if if that's enough to offend you, um, there's more. (laughs) This is an in-house discussion, you know. I'm I'm going to shoot real straight with you. I really don't understand why people get offended on an issue like this. It's like, this is not salvational. So here's the thing. My perspective is that whatever the church of the last days, whoever they are, that they're going to go through whatever that is, and they'll be spared of God's judgment because they're his people I can't explain that to you. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I just can't find in scripture a pre-trib rapture or a mid-trib rapture, personally. I just can't find, I've tried, and I tried, I've tried. Some of you, um, I had somebody walk up to me last service and say, I'm still pre-trib, and I said, awesome, that's great. It's totally fine at our church if you're pre, mid, or post. Um, it doesn't offend me at all. It offends some people. I have no idea why it offends them. And I think part of the reason is is because we have this escapist mentality. It's like, we just don't, we don't wanna suffer. But I wanna remind you of something about 50,000 people a year are dying for their faith in Christ. The apostles and the early church fathers believed that the, the return of Jesus was imminent. In fact, they believed they were in the great tribulation. 10 of them were murdered. I mean, you, you have to know, they believed they were in the great tribulation. They were murdered for their faith. So they didn't have another view that offended them. They just didn't have it. And so this is my perspective, but I think it's helpful for us to know a couple things. Number one, I can't find that the apostles or any of the early church fathers believed that there was a pre-trib rapture. I can't find it. Okay? So that's number one of why I am telling you I'm post-trib. Number two is that pre-trib rapture didn't exist. That doctrine didn't exist until 1850. 1850. Where a guy named John Darby is the one who came up with this, and it ended up in the Schofield Bible. So, some of us were taught that, and it sounds great because of what we were taught about the last days. Instead of being taught about Jesus and his coming, and we hasten the day, and we long for him, and we look for him, instead of being taught that, we were taught about, man, we better get out of this place because it's getting bad. And so I think when you create this structure of theology where it's bad and doom and gloom and destruction, and there are some bad things that happen, when you create that scenario, now you need a doctrine to escape out of it. And it just, I think it comforted a lot of people. So we can argue with it after coffee. If you differ with me uh, or after the service, uh, you can buy me coffee. That's fine. You're paying though. Here's an important concept of the rapture, okay? When Jesus talks about the angels are going to gather people, and look what he says, from the farthest points of the earth and the farthest points of heaven. It sounds like something is happening one at the same time as the Lord comes. It's important to know, like a historical thing that would often happen, when a king would come to a city, Jesus is a king, when a king would come to a city, he would often send ambassadors before his coming. And they would come to that city and they would announce the arrival of the king. As the king was coming with his procession, the gates would open and those ambassadors would go out to the king and become part of that procession and there was always a welcoming party as the king and his procession made his way into the city. So this is an important concept that a Jewish mind would understand. There is a heavenly procession that's gonna happen. Now we argue as to whether or not we're gonna be taken at this time or this time or this time. I don't think it's important. I've landed on this perspective but I could be wrong. I honestly think I could be wrong and I'm open to that. What I'm not wrong about, what you're not wrong about is Jesus is coming. Everybody say Jesus is coming. coming. And say we can argue about the rest. rest. That was a low murmur. (laughs) We can argue about the rest. All right. The third point is very important. Chapter 13, verse 33 through 37, the posture of the church until the return of Christ. Look what Jesus says. This is where he lands the plane. Take heed. Keep on the alert for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore be on the alert for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to everyone. And I think that goes out to all generations. Be on alert. Two quick things. Number one, the church must take the return of Christ seriously. Amen. This whole conversation that we're in in chapter 13 was started by Jesus saying the temple's going to be destroyed. The disciples wanted to know when, and he unfolds all of this conversation, really important stuff throughout their life. Here's what we know about the apostles They longed for the return of Jesus. They wanted to know right in the moment, when are you going to come into your fullness and manifest the kingdom? When's that gonna happen? They wanted to know then, this is what they longed for. They believed in the imminent return of Jesus because they longed to be with their king. There was something in their DNA and it was in the early church as well. They were looking for, watching for, waiting for. They wanted Jesus to return. They wanted to be with the one in whom they have believed. There was something special about that. And I think in our generation, we've lost it. There are, past, there are passages in the Bible that actually say there will be people that will mock the Christian church and say, where is his coming? You guys believe that he's going to come. Where is his coming? He hasn't come. Look at all this darkness and chaos and destruction. Look at the hypocrisy of the church. Where's the coming of the one you say is going to return? There's going to be this mockery that will come in the last days. It's mentioned in several passages. And I think the church kind of lulls to sleep, which is why we constantly need revival is because we fall asleep and God wants to wake us back up to who he is and to what he's doing. And so what we know about this is that the church that takes the second coming of Jesus seriously will cleanse themselves of their sin and defilement. Look what John said, First John chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. Don't, don't you love this verse? Amen. We'll be like him. That's right. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Anybody has this hope. The word hope is, is similar to expectation. Anybody who is expecting the arrival of Jesus will cleanse themselves from all defilement. A dead church is a church full of sin that's a dead church. A church that will allow themselves to sit in the filth of what Jesus paid for, not only for us to be forgiven of, to, but to be cleansed of. That's a dead church. A dead church tolerates it, doesn't want holiness, doesn't want anybody to know about secrets, is allo- will allow themselves to live in that which Jesus paid for. And so when you read verses like, whom the sun sets free is free indeed, we don't believe it. And so we allow ourselves in our generation, what happens often is we get lulled to sleep and we, we're comfortable with sin rather than holiness. And that's a dead church. And a live church are those that confess their sin. They get clean before God. They root that stuff out of their life because Jesus is coming. That's what he says. Anybody who has this expectation that Jesus is going to come will cleanse themselves, purify themselves of all the defiles. I don't want anything in the way. I don't want to shrink back in his coming. Oh, but we could go along with the culture, which is described in multiple passages that talk about this. They say, well, you know, as it was in the beginning and as it's been in all of history, we eat, we drink, we be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. That's the perspective, not just in the last days, but of every generation, that we just focus on what we want and the worldliness and the worldly ways. And I would tell you that as we keep our focus of Jesus's return, whether that's us going to him or him coming to us one of the two is going to happen but as we focus on on Jesus returning we will keep our focus on his word with an obedient heart we will keep a short account with God if we sin we repent don't don't hang out on that for a while don't don't push it off amen don't push it off we sin we repent god And his kindness leads us to repentance. But sometimes we push off that repentance for another day, another week, another month. And we get harder and harder and harder. And it gets harder to repent, doesn't it? Because our heart becomes callous and we wonder what's wrong. And what's wrong is is that Jesus paid for something that we could be free from, but we allow it to exist in our life like it doesn't matter. We have to keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. We don't have to allow that stuff in our life we keep a short account with others. If we've sinned against someone or they've sinned against us, we have to address it. Keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with other people. We have our hope fixed on him. We cleanse ourselves of anything that's in the way because we're looking forward to him. I was uh, thinking about this. like If your bank was going to close April 1st, it's March 2023. I know you know that, but it's moving fast. Isn't it moving fast? Can we just, can we just wink on that for a second? That's... But if your bank was closing April 1st, 2023, and they were going to go bankrupt, would you make another deposit tomorrow? A few of you are still praying about it. Would you make another deposit? No, you wouldn't. Why? Because this this thing's going to be gone. The Bible is very clear. The world system, the structures of this world, says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And yet what... This world is lobbying for our attention, our affection, and our investment. That we put our investment, our time, talent, and treasure, we invest ourselves into the things of this life that do not endure. And Jesus calls us, as we think about his coming, he calls us to make an investment in eternal things. This is what he calls us to make an investment in the things that matter, the things that are sustained, the things that are endured. We don't want to invest into this world and into this world system. Now, I'm not telling you to sell your house and leave your spouse and run up to the mountains and Build a cabin and wait for his. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying investing and sharing the gospel, and being generous and shining a light and giving our whole selves and all that we are to the work of His kingdom. The Bible knows nothing else other than this. This is our reality because our King is coming back, and if Jesus is coming back, we don't just want to prepare ourselves like I don't have anything wrong in my life. No, we want to be about His business and doing what He's called us to do. That's what it means. The second thing is, is really in that vein of what I'm talking about. I'm going to share point two and three together. The church must be ready and stay focused on the mission of Christ until he returns. This is what we must do. The text actually says to stay alert. Jesus said, stay alert. And that means stay awake. That's what it means. It means stay awake. That could be a good message for today, you know, because we lost an hour of sleep. And I'm not judging you. I mean, just a couple of you, just a few of you. Stay awake. What's he talking about? I, I think that he means to be mindful, to be prayerful, to be watchful. You know, in chapter 14, the, the, we're going to study, study it starting next week. Jesus has the last Passover with his disciples, and then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter, James, and John. This intimate moment where Jesus reveals his heart. It's a difficult time. He's anticipating his crucifixion. And he takes them to a certain spot and says, stay here and wait and pray. You guys remember that? Stay here, wait and pray. And then he goes on a little further and he talks to the father, you know, take this cup. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. he's, He's talking about what he's feeling, but he makes a decision. I'm fully surrendered. And then he comes back to his disciples. And does anybody remember what his disciples are doing when he comes back? Yeah, they're sleeping, aren't they? And he goes back to have a time of prayer and he comes back and they're sleeping again and he goes to have a time of prayer. Three times he comes back, his disciples are sleeping. His disciples were sleeping in one of the most important moments of their life, one of the most difficult moments of Jesus's life. The disciples, his followers are sleeping because they don't know the time that they're living in. They have no clue. Jesus knows, he's anticipating it. He tells them what to do, but they don't understand the strength of it. And so he says, can you not just wait and pray for one hour? It's almost like saying, do you not get the time that you're living in? I just, I don't know if you see it, but to me, it kind of resonates when Jesus is saying, stay alert, stay awake. And then the next conversation is this, where it's almost like plays out. It's not the interpretation, but it just feels something is happening to me. And I was thinking about how we ought to be taking seriously his call and commission. And that isn't to suggest you're not, but I think when we think about this conversation, it means we've got to renew our heart and commitment to what Jesus said. I read this book, and half the time when I read it, I go, oh, Lord, help me. (laughs) Anybody else read this book and go, ouch? Sometimes you listen to me preach, and you say, ouch. I try to be Joel Osteen. It just doesn't come, guys. It doesn't come, you know. I can mimic him, but I, I, feel, I feel this urgency in my heart. I, I, I feel this fire in, inside of me that I, I've, since I've been born again and baptized with the Spirit, I've never been able to let go of. And I, I genuinely believe some of it's been and some of it's the Lord. <laughs> I try to figure out which is which these days, but I, I have an edge in me and I, and I don't apologize for it because I believe that Jesus is coming. And if he's coming, I would rather prepare you for his coming than just, let's just do potlucks and raffles and have a good old time. Let's just close up shop and go have some donuts and just try to live good lives and have good families where we are Insta, you know, Instagram famous and photogenic, and it's just a wonderful life. It's a beautiful thing, and all of our traditions, and, and Jesus comes, and we weren't ready. That scares me. I don't want to have that, and I don't want to be a pastor like that, and I don't want us to be a church like that. We're a church on mission, longing for his return. I got up this morning and, and an hour early, an hour earlier than an hour earlier, and it was, it was, I figured why not? I was anticipating it, and I, I had this thought, and I think it's a fair thought, is that I was thinking about the sun rising, and I wrote this down in my journal. The sun rises, there are two kinds of people. There are people that wake up anticipating that. I mean, they're up before the sun rises, and, and they're sitting in a chair in the living room. Maybe this is you. The drapes are open and it's dark out, and you're just waiting for the sun to rise. You're, just, you're looking for it. it, it you, you love it. and as, as its light and its warmth kind of rush into the living room, there's something special about that. But then there are people that are still in the bed. You know who you are. <laughs> you don't want the sun to rise. You're like, no, I want to be here all day, all week. I don't care. Come on. It's one thing naturally, not, That doesn't matter which one you are, if you're the groggy morning person that doesn't want to get out of bed and the snooze button was created for people like you, like you know you already plan to wake up at the latest point, you don't need that snooze button, amen, you don't need that, that's the demonic spirit sent to torment you, that's all that is, just get rid of that guys, just get rid of it, say Lord I don't need it, you know, you need an awake button is what you need. And if you travel with me, you know that when it's time to wake up, I wake up. I'm up. Bam. That's it. It's intimidating to most people. I apologize in advance. I've been told it's not fun, but I'm that way. You know, it's time to wake up. You're awake. I'm singing. I'm like, how are you like my wife? How are you like this in the morning? I'm like, just don't tell nobody. Just don't tell nobody. So you don't tell anybody either. Okay, don't do it. Yeah, it's a secret. But there are people that are anticipating the sunrise. There's something special about it. And I, I just... You know what would be sad to me is spiritually if we were the people in the bed just groggy and not wanting to wake up, not wanting to see the sunrise. If spiritually that, that's what we're like. There are those that are looking for it. They can't wait for it. They want the light to come. They, 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 they hasten the day. And there are those that are like, oh, just push it off. Just sleeping. Oh, we don't need to get up right now. Oh, it's not that important right now. It's important. It's important that we're awake right now. It's important that we're alive to what Jesus is doing right now. And I think the problem in our generation is that there's too many voices. I think there's too many voices trying to tell us what to do, where to go, how to be. And it just muddies the waters of what the pure word of God says, where we want everything else, but we don't want this. And I'm saying that we need to come back to a place where we're listening to to his voice I was. Um, I have to close here, but I was thinking about how uh, when I'm going somewhere and I don't know where I'm going, uh, and I happen to be with another person, I do what you all do. I pop out my phone and I put in the address because Big Brother Google is going to take me where I need to be. Right? Amen. So I don't even waste the time trying to like I remember how to get there. I'm just not that person. Some of you are that person. God bless you. I don't. I don't do that. But every now and again, I'm with somebody who has. They're, they have misplaced confidence in their ability to navigate us, not just them, but now it's us somewhere. They're like, oh, don't worry about that. I know where we're going. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody do, do that? Don't confess it today. But like, oh, I know where we're going. And, and, I, and I pause because I'm, I'm old enough now to know that I don't know if I trust them, but I don't know if it's going to be too offensive if I don't allow them to navigate. So I go, okay, okay. And occasionally I put my trust in that person and their voice to bring us to the place that we're supposed to be. And there comes that really awkward moment where we've gone too far and we both realize we are not where we're supposed to be. And I'm kind of waiting for them to admit it, but occasionally I have to bring it up, which is even more awkward because they know and I know, and now I'm having to correct the thing that they were so confident about. You, do you understand what I'm talking about? And I think, I think honestly, sometimes spiritually what we do is we put our trust in the voice of another person, and what they're saying, what we need to be focused on, what we need to be doing, where we need to be going, and we end up somewhere entirely different. We've allowed another voice to tell us where we're gonna go, hey, don't worry about, don't worry about that, I'll get you there. All these voices today, and I just wanna tell you, you and I have gotta listen to the voice of God. It's time to be awake, it's time to be ready, and I wanna say this without apology. If we are living a Christianity that is half-hearted, it is time to let that die. It's time to wake up and be all in for Jesus. This is what the Bible preaches. It's to give our whole life to Jesus Christ and nothing less. That's what the church should be about in the days in which we're living. No secrets. You might have struggles, but you and I cannot have secrets. We have to be people that follow him. We are abandoned to the Lord Jesus Christ. That has to mean something to us, and you say, "Well, Ben, why? Because the apocalypse of Jesus is coming. The unveiling, the revelation, of His glory is coming. He is not just some carpenter from Nazareth. He's not just some miracle worker like Elijah or one of the prophets. He's not just some rabbi that walked by the Sea of Galilee. He is the soon-coming King." He 's the king of glory, he 's the king of kings he 's the deliverer he 's the redeemer he 's going to make all things right and friends he 's the judge he 's going to judge the living and the dead and it 's the time to get right with God and i don 't mind bringing that message back it 's a time I wore my shirt I came ready for war today it 's time to get right with God and so last night i 'm preaching this message and And I shared like this passionately. I don't know if it was more restrained. I don't remember, but I shared. And there was a woman that came here and she's not, she's new to the church. She was invited by somebody and she grew up in a religion. She didn't grow up as a Christian. She grew up in a religion. And that religion told her basically that you have to work for your salvation. And so she's never in her whole life believed that she was good enough to be a follower of God. She came forward. I asked, is there anybody that needs to give their life to Jesus? Well, she didn't even know. Am I supposed to raise my hand right now? I mean, she didn't know what to do. So she came forward and she began to cry. And I asked her where she was at with God. And she goes, well, I'm really trying. I'm really trying. You know, I, I, I think that I want to be. I said, are you ready today? Are you ready right now to give your whole life to Jesus? And I'm, I'm like trying to get her, ma'am, I'm, I'm serious right now. You don't have to earn your way to God. You don't have to make yourself right. You don't have to be better or perfect. You have to surrender today. Give your life over to Jesus. Are you ready to do that? And she goes, oh, I I think I am. And I said, just whatever you've been taught, here's what the gospel says, is that Jesus paid a price for the debt that we owe we cannot afford to pay God back. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We surrender to him. We receive forgiveness for our sins. Our relationship with God is secured forever. He sets us free of our sin. We are new creations. The old is behind us. All things have become new. I said, ma'am, if you're ready for that, we can pray right now. And she, her and I prayed right here, right here. We prayed and an eternal thing happened. Isn't that beautiful? An eternal thing happened right here right here. I can stand in the spot. It may not mean much to you, but it meant something right here. Eternity shifted in her heart right here. This is this is what we're about. It's about eternal things, things that matter. Going to Costco after the service, watching Netflix tonight, that don't matter, okay? It might be fun, you might like it, you might anticipate it. But there's something greater than that. And it's giving our whole life to Jesus and his and having the anticipation of his coming. This is she said to me, "You know, should I get baptized?" And I said, "Well, I think that'd be a great idea." I think that'd be a great idea because you've been dead and now you're alive. Isn't that a beautiful thing what God does? It's a beautiful thing. And so I want to close by saying this, and I I unashamedly am capitalizing on this sermon because to to us it's more than a message, it's not a sermon, it's reality. It's the truth of God's word. Jesus is coming back. I want to say this to you today. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, if you're not sure if you're forgiven of your sin, you don't know where you stand with God. You don't know where you're gonna be when life is over and life will be over. One thing is for sure, either we're going up to him or he's coming down to us. But only Christians are in that equation. And I just wanna say, if you don't know, you can know by giving your heart to Jesus. So I'm gonna pray. Would you just bow your heads for a moment? Let's just, in the presence of God, just honor him. As we're here today, if you're saying, Pastor Ben, I need to give my heart to Jesus. I know it's true. This is not emotionalism. We might feel emotion, but it's not about being compelled by me it's about responding to him if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus I don't want you to be ashamed I want you to make a courageous decision say yes that's what I need to do and I'm going to do that right now first thing I want you to do is just raise your hand I want you to acknowledge it Pastor Ben that's what I got to do right now I want to give my whole heart to Jesus just say that's me go ahead and raise your hand thank you Lord now there's two of us today is there anybody else I just want to give you some time. There's three of us today. It's an eternal thing, so I want to be respectful. Yes, sir. Okay, I see all of you. Here's what we're going to say just to start this. I want you just to pray this with me. It doesn't mean that this is all there is to salvation. I want you to come up after the service as well. But the old saints, they used to actually declare that Jesus was Lord. That's what it means. Salvation is not just that he saves us, but that he's Lord of our life. And so together as a church, we believe this. Let's say it together. Say, Jesus Christ, Christ, you are Lord. Lord. We declare that today. Thank you, oh God. Father, we come before you today in the name of Jesus. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. And we know that you're coming back. We see even in the book of Revelation, those that are being martyred for their faith, they hasten the day. They say, so come, Lord Jesus. And we want to join them. We ask you, Lord, that you would capture our hearts And restore to us the joy to see your coming and to hasten the day. Not because we want out of this world. Oh no, that's not it. It's because we want into your presence, your physical presence. We long for you. We look forward to you. And I pray you'd restore that to our hearts today. In Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening.